Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome the Honorable Judge Richard Gurgel to discuss his new book, Unexampled Courage, The Blinding of Sergeant Isaac Woodard and the Awakening of President Harry S. Truman and Judge J. Wattis Waring. Published in 2019 by Sarah Crichton Books and an imprint of Pharaoh Streis and Giroux, The book is a work of history, politics, and law that interrogates how the actions of individuals and legal processes both failed and succeeded in dismantling white supremacy in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Welcome to the podcast, Judge Gergel. Delighted to be with you. You're a United States District Court judge for the District of South Carolina and also the author of articles, book chapters, and Another book uh, you authored with uh, Dr. Belinda Gurgle on the history of Southern Jews using the lens of the Tree of Life uh, congregation in South Carolina. Let's start by talking a little bit about how you balance your work as a judge and as an author and, and and how you came to write this book about a judge most people have never heard of. Well, first of all, um, I don't know how I did it, to be honest with you. Uh, and I'm, I did it pretty slow. I did, it took me seven years to write the book. Because I, I, uh, I do have these uh, very uh, demanding duties as a United States District Judge. But as I was awaiting confirmation as a, as, as a district judge in 2010, I've been nominated by President Obama. I was among the first of President Obama's nominees. Um, uh, I am... Um, began reflecting on the history of my court. I thought that was important. And I thought in particular, I was interested in the history of the Charleston court because that's where I was being assigned. And I was going to be using the courtroom of Jay Waitis Waring. Now that, you know, uh, you say he is not known and I think that's large in the popular sense. He's not largely known. Um, I think at least recently he's become better known. Um, but he, I knew enough about him to know that he was a uh, civil rights visionary, the first of the great Southern civil rights judges. He began handing down important decisions in the late 1940s. And I knew that he had issued a dissent in Briggs versus Elliott, the first of four cases that make up Brown versus Board of Education, and that he had, uh, and that his uh, theory that the 14th Amendment barred segregation, even if facilities were equal, became the holding in Brown. Um, I knew that. But he was an enigma. He was like, uh, 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 there had been writings about him. Um, uh, there had been one biography that was dated. There was um, a Simple Justice, to Kluger's wonderful book, had made him as one of the many, many characters in that fabulous book. But no one had really answered the question, how did this rather conventional um, Southern Paul turn federal judge 
become a civil rights visionary? How did that happen? And there was really no explanation for that. And that was a curiosity to me because it, you know, he had, he had made a statement um, and uh, he was, he was a, quite a national figure in the late 1940s. And reporters from the major newspapers and magazines would come to him and they'd all ask him, what got into you? And he would say, while on the bench, I acquired a passion for justice. Now, that's a rather eloquent statement, but it tells me nothing about what happened. There were hundreds of other federal judges in that same era who did not apparently acquire a passion for justice. So what was it that actually happened? And as I began sort of looking into that story, unexampled courage emerged. This, this remarkable story of the transformation of, of, um, of this judge, of President Truman, of America, was triggered by an incident of, of police violence uh, that had long been forgotten. Let's talk a little bit about that incident. Many people are aware that as the Black veterans were returning home from World War II, there were uh, countless incidents of disrespect, of violence. Um, Many people may know that Jackie Robinson uh, was involved in one of these. But this particular uh, incident that sets off the book is one that used to be very famous and well-known, but went into obscurity. So tell us a little bit about this incident that you identify as something that awakened particularly white America, as Black America was already woke on this, and, and there were many people working on it, but, but that this incident really set, struck a, a, a light for, um, for many. Well, we, we, the incident involved a returning African-American veteran by the name of Sergeant Isaac Woodard. He was a battlefield decorated uh, soldier who had received um, promotion um, uh, in battle. I mean, he was a, he had led a battalion of uh, a, a battery of, um, of, uh, of men who unloaded um, um, ships under fire. He, he, uh, uh, he had come from, uh, Sergeant Woodard had come from a rural, impoverished South Carolina family from Fairfield County, one of the poorest counties uh, in South Carolina, among the poorest in the country. His parents were um, uh, landless sharecroppers. They were, um, they, they uh, struggled financially. Uh, he went into the service and he had natural leadership skills and he had uh, natural talents that emerged in this experience. Uh, he was um, discharged on February the 12th, 1946, from Fort Gordon, uh, then Camp Gordon, Georgia, near Augusta. And the plan was that he was to um, um, uh, go onto a Greyhound bus in Augusta and travel first to uh, Columbia, South Carolina, and then onto his hometown of Winsboro, where he was to rendezvous with his wife after three years of separation from his military service. While on the bus riding through rural South Carolina, uh, there would be periodic stops. And on one of the stops, he approached the bus driver and he said, "Um, you know, I'd like to step off to use the restroom. And the bus driver presumably saw this as a sort of 
act of effrontery by a black man to ask for an accommodation, cursed him and told him to return to his seat at the back of the bus. And to his complete surprise, Sergeant Woodard cursed him back and said, speak to me like I'm a man. I am a man just like you. Now, literally, this is on the day of his discharge from the military. He is in uniform. He has his battlefield decorations and his sergeant stripes on his sleeve. Um, And the bus driver says, you go ahead. But at the next stop in a little town called Batesburg, South Carolina, um, uh, the bus driver, now no longer concerned with staying on schedule, which was presumably the reason he didn't want to uh, let uh, Woodard step off the bus, he, um, he left the bus, his own bus, looking for a police officer to have Woodard removed and arrested. Uh, he encountered uh, and found the uh, police chief of a two-person police force, a gentleman by the name of Linwood Shaw. And he uh, and Woodard was summoned off the bus and removed and arrested. And on the way to the town jail, he was, while in police custody, he was beaten and blinded by the police chief with his with his battle his um, blackjack, ending with the blackjack end being stabbed into both of Woodard's eyes, permanently blinding him. Um, the episode initially wasn't. It was in February of forty six. wasn't really known. Uh, Woodard was carted over to the Veterans Hospital in Columbia um, by his assaulter, the police. Uh, uh, the, the police chief, after he had been take, dragged over to the county, to the town court the next morning, and con- he was convicted of drunken disorderly conduct, uh, he's then taken over to uh, and dumped unceremoniously at the Veterans Hospital. And no doubt he had some kind of brain injury from this vicious beating that resulted in a blinding. I mean, it would, you can imagine what this must have been involved. And um, But he began sort of remembering and sharing his story with um, African-American orderlies at the Veterans Hospital. And eventually the word goes to the um, um, uh, head of the uh, executive director of the, or the president of the NAACP in South Carolina, who sends a black reporter on the black-owned newspaper down to visit him at the hospital to hear his story. And, um, and, and that was then recounted in a memorandum that landed on the desk of Walter White the executive secretary of the NAACP in New York. Uh, Walter White is kind of a forgotten figure today, but in the 1940s, he was the most important civil rights leader in America. He was Thurgood Marshall's boss, okay? I mean, he was a really important guy. And um, he was a very savvy fellow, very well connected politically. Among those who considered him a close friend was Harry Truman, who he would, Truman regarded him as his most important um, ally in the civil rights community. So um, White senses immediately the ability to communicate with white America about this story. A battlefield decorated sergeant on the day of his discharge while still in his dress uniform, beaten and blinded. He even, can't even get home before he's beaten and blinded. He survives war against the Japanese, but is blinded in rural South Carolina. I mean, that's quite a story. And Walter White immediately gets it. I mean, he is like, we're, um, you know, we're going to do something with this case. This has some importance. And like many African-Americans from South Carolina at this era, his parents and sister and brothers, sisters had 
immigrated to the North during the war where there were jobs. And he, upon discharge from the hospital, his t- two of his sisters came down, picked him up, and drove him to New York. And then within a few days, had him in the office of the NAACP. And, um, and we, we're talking about uh, soon involvement is not just Walter White, but Thurgood Marshall. And everyone's recognizing that this is a story that could resonate. But there's a lot of mystery about and confusion about exactly what happened and where it happened. Woodard had stepped off a bus and was beaten and blinded. He wasn't even sure of the town he was beaten in. Um, uh, he, he was still, though recovering, was a bit foggy about a lot of the details, understandably, frankly. And uh, he, he had, on the way to being taken to the VA hospital, he had asked the man who beat him, who was driving him in the car over to the VA hospital, what town was I in? And he was told he was in Aiken, South Carolina, which is about 30 miles from Batesburg. And eventually the story is they're trying to figure out what happened in Aiken and it wasn't Aiken. There was so a lot of confusion about this in the early days of this story. Well, Walter White has a connection with Orson Welles, the great movie producer who had a national radio program, weekly radio program on ABC Radio. As soon as Orson Welles heard this story, he knew there was something magical about it. It was a kind of whodunit quality. They didn't know where it had happened and who had done it. But, and, and, and Orson Welles, the, maybe one of the great storytellers of American cinema, then launches a four-part over four different weeks. He does this announcement about searching out and discovering the, um, the man who blinded Isaac Woodard. Well, no one had ever used radio quite this way before, and it electrified um, the civil rights community. The word went out, listen to Orson Welles, and then it, it created um, a huge public demand. And they began um, town uh, uh, meetings and civil, um, civil rights groups across America demanding justice for Isaac Woodard and to prosecute the man who had blinded him. And ultimately determined it's, it was in Batesburg, South Carolina, and that the culprit was one Linwood Shaw. And um, but at this time, there are virtually no accountability for white men, particularly white law enforcement officers, who would beat and blind um, black men, black returning black veterans. In fact, it was not uncommon if there was a lynching in a town that law enforcement officers would be among those participating. That was a very common phenomenon, that the officers would disappear, the sheriff would disappear from the jail, and they would go get the victim. And um, often there'd be episodes where the law enforcement officers were at the lynchings. So the involvement, but across America, you started off as saying there were these ugly episodes. There wasn't one prosecution of anybody and, and, and from these incidents initially, there's just no prosecution. There was no accountability. That at one point, one NAACP leader noted in the history of America, no one had ever been convicted for a crime related to lynching or the beating of a black man. Uh, and that was in a discussion with the Attorney General Tom Clark in a public session regarding the Woodard decision of the Justice Department to prosecute. Well, how did that happen? That was a real curiosity to me. 
how did in the midst of of um of this era where there was essentially unheard of for a, a, a white police officer to be prosecuted for excessive force against a black man. How did this happen? So I was trying, you know, I initially, and I'll get to the story about Judge Waring, but I was trying to figure out how the world did this thing ever get prosecuted? It was a major prosecution. And I then discovered that in September of 1946, so we're talking about between February when the incident occurs and September when uh, when there is a meeting with civil rights leaders and President Truman in the Oval Office concerning the, um, uh, the this violence against black veterans, returning black veterans. And the leader, various leaders from different organizations were advocating the, for President Truman to call Congress back in this session and to adopt anti-lynching, federal anti-lynching legislation, which, by the way, Professor, has never passed. To this day, we do not have a federal, federal crime of lynching. It actually was held up the other day in the U.S. Senate, um, which everybody thought it might finally pass. It's been, I think, proposed every year since 1923. But uh, uh, so there, the, the, the President Truman had been a veteran of these battles as a U.S. senator. He had supported federal anti-lynching legislation, had voted to sit down Southerners. But here he knew calling Congress back into session was a complete waste of time, that the Southern the, a block of Southern Democrats and, and Republican, Republican conservatives were with thwart any effort to accomplish that. So they're having this discussion, and President Truman is trying to explain to the civil rights group that he's with them, but there's nothing he can do. Walter White realizes that the president, his great friend, does not appreciate the gravity of the situation. And he tells him, he stops the discussion about policies and plans and calling Congress back into session and tells President Truman the story of the blinding of Isaac Woodard, which was very personal to him. He, had, he knew Woodard. He had heard the story from Woodard himself. And there are multiple people later would recount, because this was a flexion point for Harry Truman, that Truman sat there, his face turned beet red. He was furious. He was agitated that an American soldier decorated and, and in uniform would be so cruelly treated. And he announced to his staff, which had told him, you can't do anything. You can't do any, you know, it's just impossible. Politically, practically, you just can't, there's nothing you do. Truman announces to everyone in the room, we got to do something. We just can't sit back. So the next day he writes a letter, Truman writes a letter to, um, uh, to the Attorney General of the United States, Tom Clark, and tells him the story of the blinding of Isaac Woodard. Included in the letter, President Truman says the police officer intentionally put out uh, Woodard's eyes. And and you know, at this point, the the Justice Department had received multiple referrals of serious matters of police violence, of of mob violence, of of murder. And not one prosecution. And President Truman, who had his own political imperatives in, in regarding the emerging African-American vote in many urban areas, swing states, and the North and Midwest, he made it clear the time for action had now arrived. And he also said, you know, we've got to do more than just prosecute. We have got 
to, uh, uh, we need some new ideas, and I'm going to appoint the first presidential commission on civil rights. Following this one letter about Isaac Woodard, one day after the meeting, and three business days later, the Justice Department, in the name of the Attorney General, announces the prosecution of Linwood Shaw for the deprivation of the civil rights of Isaac Woodard. And within a few weeks, the Justice Department had set up the mechanism for the appointment of the first Presidential Commission on Civil Rights. And as a political scientist, I know, I'm sure you're aware of that, the great work of that committee, which basically, in a, and, um, uh, in a um, series of proposals called to secure these rights, uh, the uh, 1947 record basically was the blueprint for the civil rights movement for the next 20 years. And among those proposals of this very far-reaching, far-sighted committee was the desegregation of the armed forces of the United States, which Truman, by executive order, implemented. So before we get to that incredible story about what Truman does, in particular because he is thwarted, because he cannot get anything through Congress, let's just back up a little bit. We have listeners from all over the world and all the different subfields of political science. Some who are, you know, steeped in the intricacies of Nicaragua, but not necessarily this period of American history. Um, yes. And so I, just to, to... Slow me down then. Let's yeah, no, and, and also, I, like, like, what you use a term in the book called and you, it, bystander government. And, and I think that there's sort of two, at least, levels of bystander government here. You've already mentioned one of them, which is that the local level, without any of the African-Americans' citizens able to vote because of the poll taxes, because of grandfather uh, clauses, because of um, intimidation, uh, physical and economic, the list not, is in, the list is, is endless. This is endless, and uh, we just had a fantastic uh, author, uh, Gilda Daniels, whose whose new book on voter suppression tries to connect those times to the present times. We'll get to that later in the in the podcast. But, but when you're talking about bystander government, you're on the one hand talking about this situation on the local level, but also the situation at the national level. So let's back up just a little bit to the 19th century to remind everybody of how it is that we moved from the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and a civil war and the supposed reconstruction of the South to make all citizens equal to the positioning of Black Americans south of the Mason-Dixon line as unequal citizens. So can you just remind everybody just a little bit about Plessy, about Williams? You know, first of all, many believe, I among them, that um, when the first uh, person of African descent stepped off a boat uh, in the New World or in America, um, it was the beginning of America's original sin of slavery. And over the years, um, slavery exploded, particularly in the South. And um, after uh, the American Revolution and the utter failure of the Confederation of States that was attempted, it was clear they needed a central government. But the South 
in no way would ever join a union which could threaten slavery. So the American Constitution, talk about original sins, uh, reached a series of compromises in which it was agreed that the South would be given disproportional representation um, as a means of making sure the North could never eliminate slavery. So what were those devices among them, of course, was the three-fifths compromise, was the Electoral College. All those were architectures of preservation of slavery. And um, and it largely succeeded um, for a while, uh, mainly because every time a new state was to come in, it was paired with a, a slave state and a, and a free state, so that this delicate balance would not be disrupted. But by um, 1860, uh, the anti-slavery sentiment across the North was so passionate, often, frankly, um, driven by the ultimate Southern triumph of the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, which allowed bounty hunters to chase um, uh, uh, formerly enslaved persons who had gotten to their freedom and to kidnap them and return them to their former owners. That created this huge political wave that elected Abraham Lincoln president of the United States. And before Lincoln could even assume office, because at the time the president did not assume office until March, he was elected in November. The southern states had basically succeeded. Certainly, South Carolina early on, and others soon followed. So that by the time um, um, Lincoln became president, he had a divided, uh, and you know, uh, he had he faced succession. Well, it took Lincoln a while, frankly. You know, he's remembered as the great emancipator. It took him a while to get there. Uh, he at one point said, "If I could." preserve the union and not free a slave, I would do that. Um, but he soon came to the realization, um, and there were a lot of complicated reasons for it. One of them was international recognition that Europe was vigorously anti-slavery at this point, that um, that if he wanted inter- he wanted to keep the South from being recognized by England and, uh, and France, which was, it desperately sought, um, uh, it, it needed to be on the right side of of the of the slavery question, and um, frankly, the Union needed the black soldiers. I mean, so eventually, Lincoln becomes uh, this um, committed to the emancipation Emancipation Proclamation, which is truly a remarkable but yet imperfect document. It only freed people in states of rebellion, but uh, Lincoln appreciated that this was not going to be permanent. Uh, without the adoption of the 13th Amendment, which he brilliantly um, orchestrated. Um, and, and then uh, as the war ended, uh, s- Southern uh, um, white leaders who assumed control of those states, many had been, which had been white unionists, um, adopted what became known as the Black Codes, which basically reinstituted slavery um, uh, in, a, in a form of a contract system uh, and, uh, and a convict labor system that was uh, uh, that. And, and so the northern states, in response to this, uh, what they considered to be this unreconstructed view of the South, adopted the Reconstruction Acts, the 14th and 15th Amendment, the 14th Amendment guaranteeing equal protection of the laws, and the 15th Amendment allowing every male the right of suffrage. And for the first time, 
the federal government was now no longer a bystander. It was no longer a facilitator of the oppression of African Americans. It was um, on the side of of equal rights and voting rights for the formerly enslaved persons. And uh, that went along. 1868 was the first election under the sort of Reconstruction Acts. And it, it finally expired in 1876 and early 1877 in the Hayes-Tilden presidential election, where um, the South, uh, there was a contested election. There were several states which uh, um, the, the lots of votes were contested, including South Carolina, where there had been massive white voter fraud. Uh, and, um, and very close elections where it appeared that the Democrat had, um, Tilden had won the state, but with the result of massive election fraud. Well, the, these Southern leaders led by South Carolina went to the Republican leadership of Hayes and said, we'll cut you a deal. We'll deliver the South Carolina votes and the Louisiana and Florida votes, the three states in contest. Uh, to the to Hayes, make him president of the United States, but you've got to withdraw the federal troops from South Carolina and the other southern states. Hayes agreed, Rutherford B. Hayes agreed. He was sworn in as president. The federal troops left. And from that point until the time this story emerges, America had been a bystander government. It had left to the states. Um, the responsibility of, of addressing the legal standing and rights of persons of color. You know, you, you, uh, you mentioned the bystander uh, state governments, bystander local governments. You know, I was uh, at a um, program in Boston um, in which the uh, chief justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court was on a program with me, two of us, and the president of the American Bar Association. It was a three-person program. And, uh, um, and, the, and the Chief Justice, uh, Justice uh, uh, Gintz, um, uh, made the observation, he had, you know, about talking about my book, he said, you know, um, it's a form of state-sponsored terrorism because they had the responsibility to prosecute murder. And by not prosecuting, they were actually acquiescing and facilitating uh, state-sponsored murder, um, and in many, he also pointed out in many of the instances, law enforcement, white law enforcement officers were there. So actually, I would, I think there's probably some accuracy to that, and that the, the federal government was a bystander, but the, the uh, southern state governments were really facilitators. And you've got lots of evidence along the way. In fact, um, governors saying we we are we are supporting white supremacy and we won't let it go away. And it, oh no, it's, it's very it's only unfair. fashionable now to deny that we're that that. But at, at the time, uh, you know, uh, it was a a badge of. I mean, you really could not credibly talk about race without first, as a white person, asserting that you believe in the supremacy of white people over black people. That was like a given. You had to say that even if you thought any aspect of the treatment of black people was not right. To avoid uh, being labeled some kind of a softy, you had to say, of course, we're all white supremacist. 
So as Truman, um, you were talking about the appointment of this commission, which I definitely want to move us towards. But as Truman comes to address this, there's at least two things going on. One is a legacy of the national government. Uh, I, I agree with you. It's not really bystander. In many ways, it's an assertive uh, white supremacy uh, jur jurisprudence, so that in Plessy, we have separate but equal, and in Williams, we have the disenfranchisement of most Black citizens in the South. And Truman also has this problem that the FDR uh, coalition was one that was highly dependent upon Southern segregationists, and FDR is famously uh, hesitant in any way to, to touch that, to do anything that would upset or to do too much that would upset. That was the hot spot on the oven you didn't touch. Exactly. And so, so what you show in really interesting ways in the book is how Truman, who one would not expect Truman's background as a, uh, a man raised in the part of Missouri that was sympathetic with a Confederate cause, a grandmother, a grand, no, he was a grandson of, of enslavers. He's got a mother who you call an unreconstructed re uh, Southerner. Uh, you would imagine that he would not be sympathetic from where he comes from. But what you show is that, in fact, he does become the person, not FDR, the patrician from the Northeast, but this Missouri person who moves, despite his background, towards civil rights I'd like to get to the commission, and but let me let me mention one thing in that he had a very progressive record as a U.S. senator, and why was that? Because the Pendergast machine, which he was very much a part of, one of the big city machines of Kansas City, he um, they depended on African American voters. They were he very heavily committed, and you know there's. Pendergast machine has been rightly characterized as being very corrupt. It was very corrupt, but it served its loyal supporters, including African-Americans. There was this great quote. I, I mentioned Truman, a Southerner comes up to Truman because like you say, he's a, you know, Southern, he's a farmer, you know, you're from Southern Missouri. What would you think? And they said, Harry, I just can't believe you're not with us. And he says, I just, I've got the vote in Kansas city. It shows you the impact. Of, 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 of what suffrage does in terms of holding public officials accountable. No, I, I, uh, but, I, he also, but he also came to believe, and I think genuinely believe, it was wrong to treat, you know, for the public to treat, uh, the government to treat um, people differently because of the color of their skin. It was something I think he deeply believed. So one of the characters in this book is the NAACP, uh, including White, including Thurgood Marshall, including many of the attorneys who are creating this strategy, uh, and also trying to influence public opinion and make Americans understand, which I think actually has a lot of resonance for us now as we are only, I think it's 17 days from the death of George Floyd. So I was wondering if you could just Talk about the role of the NAACP, uh, how they tried to communicate this to the wider public, and the role of Thurgood Marshall in that awakening, again, of white America. Black America was already pretty woke here. Well, you know, uh, the, the NAACP um, uh, was formed by a coalition of white liberals and uh, uh, and 
uh, African Americans. And for a while, it was a kind of dominated white organization, I mean, the white leadership. Um, and it, for many years, had predominantly white finance, you know, benefactors, white benefactors. Um, and initially, the, uh, the NAACP in the uh, 1920s set out as one of its goals is to adopt anti-lynching legislation. People are astounded today when I tell them that there was a fight over whether it should be a federal crime to hang people, you know, take them out of a jail and hang them. Uh, but that was maybe the crucible of American politics in the 1920s and 30s is whether you supported or didn't support federal anti-lynching legislation. And um, uh, uh, the NAACP aggressively pursued that. Um, Walter White um, uh, becomes the executive secretary in the late 20s and is a is really a, quite a strategist. And um, John Hamilton Houston was the one-man uh, 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 legal counsel office of the NAACP. And uh, as things got busier, uh, and and uh, Houston became more visionary about what the potential use of the courts. He hired his number one law student, Thurgood Marshall, to join him. So for many years, the early, a lot of these crucial early years, it's literally two people in that office. It's just people look back now, you know, they have these law firms of hundreds of people. Well, you know, even in his biggest days, the NAACP legal defense fund, when they're winning all those cases in the in the late 40s and 50s, they had this string of about into the early 60s of, of how many cases they win unanimously in the Supreme Court. They never had a very big group of people. They were just, you know, they leveraged the talent and time they had to create. And, and they were great screeners and identifiers of cases. And um, John Hamilton Houston was the visionary of that. And it, it was a kind of conservative legal strategy. Um, it, it, um, it didn't swing for home runs. It swung for singles and doubles. And um, the big example of that was, listen, we, we don't agree with Plessy. We hate Plessy, but we're going to use Plessy as a sword and against the white people, because if they won't separate, we're going to demand equal. And they began bringing these lawsuits using Plessy, uh, uh, suing school districts, suing um, uh, public agencies and so forth for lack of equality, not paying teachers the same salary, not funding um, um, public facilities for blacks equal to whites. Um, uh, and they had a fair amount of success in those separate but equal cases. But there was this debate internal in the NAACP and in the larger civil rights community about whether this strategy, every time they used Plessy, they were putting a nail in the, inferior, in the coffin of inferiority of African-Americans. They were using the white man's device and confirming their own legal inferior status, though they were receiving a modicum of legal success. And that is really where we found ourselves in, in after World War II, when how were we going to continue these Plessy cases, so-called Plessy cases, or were we going to be more aggressive? And voting was a kind of easier issue because with voting, there is no separate but equal doctrine. You either vote or you don't vote. Okay, there's not the uh, it's sort of middle ground, and um, and so uh, uh, the NAACP would realize. And Mar one time, Thurgood Marshall once said, "I always figured if we ever got the vote, the right to vote, all our other problems would work themselves out." Um, 
uh, uh, there's just no question that there's a lot of wisdom to that. So they were bringing these voting rights cases, and they were bringing cases um, uh, challenging segregation in higher education. And in 1950, they challenged segregation at a law school in Texas. Uh, they stated created this very inferior law school for African-Americans, not anywhere comparable to the University of Texas, which was for white students. Um, Oklahoma had admitted uh, a black man, George McLaurin, to, uh, um, to the Graduate School of Education, but required him to sit outside the classroom. So all the white students, there's a picture that was in the record of the Supreme Court, it's in my book, where a, 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 a Mr. McLaurin is sitting at a desk outside the classroom and his classmates are inside the class. Um, uh, and and it, not surprisingly, the NAACP is winning those cases. They're, they're winning them 9-0. Um, uh, and the plan had been, well, we'll, um, we'll next move to, to, to the colleges. And then we're going to go to maybe the public high schools outside the South. And then we're going to move to the public high schools, perhaps in the big cities of the South, like Atlanta. And the last place we might go is to the rural South. That was the plan. Incremental might take us a decade, maybe two decades. But that was the plan of the NAACP. Well, that was awfully slow. And let me pick up the story, what ends up upsetting the apple cart of that plan. President Truman orders the prosecution of the police chief who blinds the soldier, Isaac Woodard. And the case is assigned to a Southern patrician by the name of Jay Waitis Waring. He is uh, multiple, his family dates back to the 1600s in South Carolina, multiple generations, slaveholders. His father, his father was a Confederate veteran. uh, just think about that one for a second. And um, he um, he um, had been uh, nominated and uh, and appointed to the federal courts on the support of uh, two segregationist U.S. senators. One of them, um, Cotton Ed Smith, one of the most vicious racists in American history, who considered Waitis Waring a close friend. So here his man arrives. He had no real history of. of much of the political establishment, like when Governor Maybank uh, was uh, U.S. senator, before that he was governor, when there was a challenge to his election, Wedges Waring went to Columbia and represented him before the election commission. I mean, he was a, this is a guy, Mr. Inside. And he then presides over the trial of the blinding of, of the police chief who blinded Isaac Woodard. And it is a transformative moment for him because he re- realizes it's all true. And though he probably should have known this, he had always told himself that he was administering a fair system of justice. And this was a revelation when a jury, 28 minutes after it was, uh, they were uh, released to deliberate, they came back with a not guilty verdict for a man who was plainly culpable. Um, and his wife was there, Elizabeth, was in attendance at the trial. And the two of them, were um, devastated, personally devastated 
over this trial in which he had just presided. And what I said in the book was that this trial forced the Warings to stare directly into the Southern racial abyss. And it forever transformed both of them. So Wade is wearing returns to Charleston. This case was tried in Columbia. He returns to Charleston. And you can't talk at that time about race and justice among white people in Charleston. There was no space for anybody to do that. So the judge and his wife began a private self-study on race and justice. They began reading important books of that era. They read The American Dilemma by Gunnar Murdahl. Uh, they read uh, uh, Mind of the South by, um, by W.J. Cash. They were reading the cutting-edge stuff of the day. And once they had worked through those books together, and they read them at night, Elizabeth reading it out loud to him because he was so tired at the end of each day, that over months of this self-study, they had gone where there was no turning back. And from that point forward, Judge Waring came to realize he had a responsibility as a federal judge to uphold the rule of law. This was, as he said, he had developed this passion uh, for justice. So um, he um, uh, uh, issued, among his early cases, were voting rights cases. There was one involving um, the right of, 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 of the Democratic Party to exclude African-Americans from the Democratic primary, the so-called white primary case. And then when uh, he ruled that it violated the 15th Amendment not to allow blacks to vote in the Democratic primary, um, uh, the party tried to uh, work around his decision by allowing blacks to vote if they would sign an oath swearing that they supported segregation. And um, Judge Waring um, uh, um, summoned all the um, Democratic executive committee men, 93 of them, to his uh, courtroom in Charleston. And he told them that a federal judge faced with a violation of, uh, of his order can impose a fine or a jail sentence. He says, I want everyone who's present here to know that if you violate my order again, there will be no fines. And that communicated to South Carolina's political establishment, to its white community, that Judge Waring was in, prepared to incarcerate white men for violating the, the political rights of African Americans. That was the break of Waitus Waring from the political establishment to which he had been such a part. And he suffered incredible vilification. His lifelong friends would not speak to him. His wife would be bumped and jostled on the sidewalk. A cross was burned in their yard, and bricks were thrown through their living room window. Death threats were almost a daily, okay, uh, a daily event, and the, um, on the order of the attorney general, uh, Judge Waring had 24-hour, 24-hour U.S. Marshal protection. He literally slept in his house. They were such a worry that he, there would be an assassination attempt on Judge Waring. So here was this man. This is all in the late 40s. I mean, this is years before Brown versus Board and all of this. Uh, and he's out there all by himself. There is not another judge in the South doing what he is doing. And he is getting pilloried by the local officials. There are efforts among Southern, Southern congressmen to have him impeached. I mean, this is, um, this is a, uh, I mean, he is in the middle of a um, maelstrom 
of, of vilification and, and attacks. Well, if that was all intended to cower him, it didn't work. It didn't work. He continued his study and reflection on the issues of race and justice and became convinced that Plessy versus Ferguson, the foundation of Jim Crow in America, was legally, historically, and morally wrong. And he planned, he set a course to overturn Plessy. And my, a lot of my book details his personal role in doing that, um, which is not subtle. And every time I would speak in front of judges and lawyers, they say, and I'll just, I had to discuss some of these in detail, aren't those ex parte communications? And is that an appropriate role for a judge? I'll say, I'm just telling you the facts. Yeah, and, and you do a great job in the conclusion. So as you're reading along, uh, you note, wait a minute, how is that person chatting with the president? Wait, why is that judge talking to the attorney who's involved in this case? But you do a great job at the end of the book to allow the reader to understand how the mores of, of, of the court have changed and, and that there aren't these kinds of conversations. They would no longer be acceptable. I want to back up to a couple of things that I think are fascinating about the book. One has to do with the role of the FBI and Hoover in investigating the the crime and presenting evidence, and also Hoover's approach to civil rights violations. Uh, Some of it cuts against what most political scientists know about Hoover. And so I thought if you would just briefly talk a little bit about the FBI and Hoover. Yeah, Hoover is a complicated figure, and um, there there has been some uh, wonderful work by Taylor Branch and others about the role of the FBI against Dr. War against Dr. King, all which appears to be true. But it didn't begin with Dr. King. Uh, a lot of the uh, of, of the FBI agents assigned to the South were Southern cop had been Southern cops. They were very closely allied with uh, lo- local Southern law enforcement. And they um, uh, view- generally viewed civil rights activists as troublemakers and as, um, um, tr- and as, a, as the problem, not segregation. What's interesting, and you make reference to this, is in the initial evaluation by the FBI of the facts of the Isaac Woodard beating. The local FBI agents quite predictably um, said there's nothing to this. It was really Woodard's fault. He was disrespectful of a police officer or whatever. And um, that report landed on Hoover's desk. And Hoover, in his own hand, I, I, I obtained under the Freedom of Information Act these, these internal FBI documents. And he wrote, this needs to be further investigated. This is serious. So his initial response is, you need to do more investigation. He told him to go do more. But soon there was this really negative reaction from Southern South Carolina law enforcement, particularly when the federal attorney general of the United States announced on national and national media, there was this prosecution, which no one had been consulted about, including the U.S. attorney or the uh, local FBI agents who had thought there was nothing to the case. 
They're all shocked and angered by it. The U.S. Senator from South Carolina, Olin Johnson, denounces it. Um, and there is talk among South Carolina law enforcement officers and sheriffs that they will boycott the FBI. And by that, when that word goes out, Hoover flips, and he's with those Southern agents attacking the prosecution. And it gets pretty nasty when they go to trial because the FBI agents are actively trying to undermine the very prosecution of the case. And um, it's, I think I described the uh, effort that the, the, you know, the U.S. attorney is opposed to the prosecutor. He's trying to scuttle the case. The FBI agents won't sit with the U.S. attorney, which they normally do. And I described it as a snake pit, you know, that, that, um, so, um, uh, Hoover, um, initially seems to kind of get it, but before long he falls in line and, uh, and we see, and what I try to describe is these active efforts by the local FBI agents to prevent Linwood Shaw from being held accountable for the beating and blinding of Isaac Woodard. I want to um, ask you a little bit about your research. You mentioned the Freedom of Information Act. This is a remarkable book in terms of the research. So I know I always look at the footnotes before I actually read the book. And talk a little bit about where you got the information, how much of it was oral history, how much of it is documents, and what kind of archives that you had to use to put together this remarkable story. Well, um, it wasn't sitting around in a simple narrative, I, I will say that. And um, there were um, uh, rich resources on each part of the book. Um, on, the, um, I, on the beating and blinding of Isaac Woodard, this had been a major undertaking of the NAACP. And I was aware from historian friends that the largest collection in the Library of Congress was the NAACP papers. There's four million documents, and um, it, they were lovingly curated uh, and organized. And a historian who had done a book on the NAACP, Dr. Patricia Sullivan, said, "Richard, I didn't have enough time when I was working to deal in, dive into every subject in such detail, but there's a lot of material on Isaac Woodard." So I, you know, I connected with her contact person, the Library of Congress, and. I go up there and they start hauling out file after file, thousands of documents on Isaac Woodard. Uh, I don't believe anyone had ever been through those. Um, and um, uh, certainly not in the detail for which I had gone through. And there was a lot there, um, including the approach to President Truman, the interaction with President Truman, uh, that, um, that then opened the doors to look elsewhere. Um, the um, the uh, Truman's, the Truman Library had a great deal of materials. And Truman, in my view, has not really gotten credit for, um, for his civil rights uh, work to the, the extent I believe he deserves. And when I called and spoke to the folks at the Truman Library, and I said, what do you know about Isaac Woodard? A longstanding archivist says, judge your own to something. And he then began sending me lots of material involving Truman and the whole story, the whole the letter of um, uh, to the attorney general. And here's one that really 
I thought was a stunner. Truman gets a letter in July or August of 1948. He's running for re-election. Looks like he's going to lose and lose bad. He's going to lose because Strom Thurmond is running as a Dixiecrat candidate for president because of his support of Truman's support of civil rights. And his friend, this is a friend from Missouri, and he who had been in Truman's battery in World War One, close political ally, close friend. He says, Harry, get off the ends. Let Eleanor Roosevelt handle this. If you stay on this civil rights thing, you're going to lose the election. Truman writes him back. So tell him, Ernest Roberts. He says, dear Ernie, you don't know what I know. He then tells him the story of the blinding of Isaac Woodard. He says that there's something radically wrong with the failure of the state prosecutors not to hold the officer accountable. He concludes the letter by saying, if I lose the election over this issue, it will have been for a good cause. I want you to know, I read that letter. I was stunned. I mean, whoever that was prepared to give up the presidency over civil rights. He, did, he, he didn't back down. I, um, um, I was aware as a federal judge that every federal prosecution has a uh, FBI file and has a um, prosecution file, DOJ, Department of Justice prosecution file. So I contacted and followed up and, um, and uh, made inquiries about where those files might be. Did they still exist in regard to the prosecution of Linwood Shaw? We eventually ran the files down in a national archives in the back of a warehouse in Maryland. And with some sweet persuasion, we got unredacted files from the FBI, including those notes, handwritten notes of Hoover, and uh, from uh, uh, and the prosecution file in which I got a lot of the information about the snake pit they were all in. Uh, there was a big controversy about how Isaac Woodard was blinded. The police chief said that Woodard attacked him. Seems kind of improbable in a southern town. A, a black man would attack the, chair, the the police chief of a town, but that was his defense. He says I hit him once and blinded, and I, it was an accident. But I was, you know, I, it, I, it was a moment I had to defend myself. And Woodard described multiple beatings, and um, I um, uh, I went to a forensic pathologist. Dr. Kim Collins, who, lucky for me, was the wife of one of my federal judge colleagues. And I said to her, is it possible for the man to be blinded in both eyes with a one strike? She says, get me some medical records and I can tell you how he was blinded. Well, that set out trying to get medical records from 70 years ago from the VA. I represented people who had, who whose experience with the VA about retaining medical records was so bad that every time they went to see a VA doctor, they carried an extra set of their VA records and got copies because the VA always lost their records. But here I was going to ask for records that were 70 years old. What were the chances of that? So I, I had given a talk to the United States attorneys about Judge Waring and this whole story. And uh, my local U.S. attorney in South Carolina said, if I can ever help you, give me a call. So I, I called him up. I said, you're going to regret my uh, that, that offer, but I won't 
that I want the VA to search and see if we can find Isaac Woodard's medical records. And if I write them, some bureaucrat's going to tell me they're gone. And I need somebody really to look. Well, he gets me in touch with the uh, general counsel's office of the VA. I tell the story of what of this whole story. The woman is completely enamored with it. And she, and a couple of weeks later, she calls me back. And she says, I got good news or, and bad news. I said, well, what's the bad news? But the bad news is, is in our normal record retention, Isaac Woodard's hospital records are all gone. But the good news is he applied for disability benefits and his disability file contains his hospital records. Uh, and um, we obtained those. My forensic pathologist, uh, Dr. Collins, uh, analyzed them and issued a report to me that the count of the sh- of the depth of, of Linwood Shoal was medically impossible and that the description given for the cause of the blinding by Isaac Woodard is exactly what happened to it. So um, there are lots of other stories I could tell about different records I obtained, but these were a lot of original records no one had ever obtained, and they helped me put together this remarkable story. Hard to know when to put this in, but I'll just say as somebody who's quite familiar with this period and these cases, somebody who does public law, this is a terrific book. It operates on a variety of different levels. First, it's a page turner, so it's and it's very, very clear. So this is a great book for a freshman read. This is a great book for an undergraduate class. This is an accessible book for any American to pick up and read. And I actually would say that of all times, this is a great time to pick up this book and read it. I've been reading it over the last 10 days. And I think that it highlights both things that are different in the United States and things that are still the same, which is where I'd like to go next with our conversation. But this is also a great book for people who are, are familiar with the period because it, it has these surprises. It has these interesting conversations with the judge and the strategy with Thurgood Marshall. It has the, this sort of moment about how the FBI operated, how the attorney general's office operated, how the lack of staff therefore affected uh, what cases were put forward, or the fact that the Department of Justice didn't side with people who were bringing civil rights cases, things that we've come to take for granted. So I want to recommend the book to a variety um, of readers. You just said when you were talking about Isaac Woodard and this story that it was the case that nobody could believe. It was so outrageous as to force this gradualist, you call the judge a gradualist throughout the book. He was not somebody who was like Eleanor Roosevelt or was like Walter White. And But somehow he was um, moved away from that gradualism because of the starkness of the blinding of Isaac Woodard. And I wonder what similarities you see between the death of George Floyd on camera and the blinding of Isaac Woodard. Certainly the NAACP doesn't need to do a road show because technology allows... You don't need it anymore, yeah. I mean... uh, and, and, it, and it, you know, there, there are, Professor, um, uh, some uh, quite interesting parallels. I mean, one of them uh, is that this incident of, of, of uh, police violence spurred mass demonstrations all over the United States. Um, this is, uh, you know, one of these important incidents no one remembered, you know, but it, it was um, 
it wasn't just that a few white people kind of got it. Um, uh, the NAACP got it and um, had, um, you talked about the roadshow, they had um, Isaac Woodard went around the country speaking and had um, uh, had uh, sellout audiences, packed audiences all across America. Um, uh, the, you talk about the media of, of, the, the, of the today, of the knee, watching the knee on the video. Well, that was the equivalent to that was um, Orson Welles, an unparalleled talent, describing the blinding of Isaac Woodard, um, which for that day was equally as riveting to the public. Um, uh, so, um, and Woodard uh, himself, pardon me, and Woodard himself yes. also describing it to, to packed audiences across the It country. was unbelievable. I mean, because, you know, virtually most victims of racial violence died at the end of a rope um, or were too frightened or not well enough educated to speak. And there are these accounts that you know, it wasn't like Isaac Woodard was some eloquent guy. It was just so powerful the way he described it. He was such a, a direct speaker. And so, um, and, and sometimes he would speak so low, they would ask him to speak up. Um, but there were these descriptions of these audiences in which people would burst into tears hearing him describe what happened to him. Uh, one of, um, um, you know, I, I had, I had a, um, um, a, a number of people, a number of sources just describe the power of his presentation. Um, uh, so, you know, yes, um, there, there are important parallels. There are remarkable differences. The uh, Jim Crow South in, in, it, in his vintage of 1946 is very different from today. But there are obviously um, important lessons to learn from history about things that haven't necessarily changed as much as we would want them to. Let me ask you about two of them. One has to do with juries and the other has to do with presidential commissions. Uh, throughout the book, you do this great job of telling a sub-story, which is that because serving on a jury is tied to being registered to vote, all white juries are finding uh, sheriffs, ordinary citizens who have lynched people not guilty. And we continue to see 2019, the Supreme Court saw Flowers versus Mississippi, 2016, my students did a moot court on uh, Foster v. Chapman, I think is the name of the case. I'm sorry if I get that wrong. So we still have situations like in Foster where little bees are next to a potential jury member's name. And so I'm, I'm wondering what you think of our continuing struggle with race, jury selection, and the connection to having a, a rule of law system that people believe is fair and equal. Well, in the state courts, they're subject by, to voter motor uh, legislation, which required registration to include um, um, li driver's licenses, which I think helps. Um, uh, if we suppress vote, we, uh, if we suppress registration, we limit the number of minorities on juries. There's just no question. There's a direct correlation of that. Um, and, um, uh, we, um, 
we got a ways to go. And a lot of times people thought certain battles were over and we were going to move on to new battles. And, and in some ways, we're fighting some of the same battles over again. Um, and um, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to get too specific because, frankly, Professor, I have a lot of these cases who appear before me on my docket. Um, I've tried a number of police violence cases to, to verdict uh, in which plaintiffs have prevailed. Um, so I, I don't want to you know, be in a position of, of, of someone could argue that I have prejudged cases because I plainly have not. Uh, but, um, but these issues are very much with us. Um, there are some legal doctrines that are now under a lot of scrutiny, um, most notably the use of qualified privilege for police officers. Um, in which both um, some of the most conservative and the most liberal members of the Supreme Court seem to have real problems with. Uh, I don't get to make those policies, but I have real problems with them. I enforce what I'm required to enforce, but um, um, there's some real issues about qualified immunity, which I think uh, gives a disproportional advantage to police officers who may be inflicting violence. Uh, in my experience, I'm, I'm I have had over my career, both as a lawyer and as a judge, a lot of involvement with law enforcement. And I am, by and large, an admirer of law enforcement. But it doesn't take many bad apples to give a uh, community a feeling that the the deck is is stacked against them in fundamental ways. So, um, no, we we got we got work to do. There's no question about it. And the marching is a reflection of the widespread dissatisfaction of Americans black and white with the lack of progress we've made. Earlier in the podcast, you mentioned the uh, committee that Truman appoints. And in the book, you detail the, the, the people who are on there, the balance that is struck, um, and the report that they put out in the end is to secure uh, these rights. And, and I don't usually do this, but this particular sentence just jumped out at me because of the events that we are witnessing today and the resonance. So with your permission, I'll just read your words from the book. It says, to secure these rights began by recognizing four essential rights of American citizenship, the right to safety and security of the person, the right to citizenship and its privileges, the right to freedom of conscience and expression, and the right to equality of opportunity. And you talk, and and the committee, you describe what the committee came about, about citizens being secure in their homes, which really resonates with what has happened with Breonna Taylor, and this notion of um, needing to think about these four things as the essential American creed, and that there being a disjuncture, if in fact, if we don't have them. The, The way the committee was put together by the national government, and it is something that you Uh, say over and over again in the book that in the period you're addressing, these kinds of changes must come from the national government because citizens can't actually change their representatives in the South. What They can't vote. They can't 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 vote. vote. Correct. No, no, no. Without, without, this is part of why the NAACP strategy is so brilliant because they're going to the courts, the place that they can go to But as I think about this presidential commission and the call in the late 40s and early 50s for the federal government to step in, 
I'm wondering what you think. Again, I know that you're going to hear cases, so I'm not asking you about specific policy, but in terms of how we would have this national conversation and we would make certain changes. You mentioned the fact that we still can't pass anti-lynching legislation in the U.S. Congress. What would the procedure be? I can't imagine a U.S. commission being called these days by the executive. What would it look like or what might it look like? And are there lessons from this book in, in how one could move civil rights forward? Well, let me say this. Um, Truman made a conscious decision to appoint no segregationists to his civil, civil rights community commission. He did that because he said, I'm tired of this debate. We're going to have a discussion among those ready to move forward. And so he put Southerners on there. He put blacks on there. He put women on there. He did, put academics. He put, but he didn't put segregationists on there. He said it would just entangle us in endless debate about matters we need to move beyond. So I think if, you, if you're going to have a discussion about civil rights, you best not put people who are against civil rights on it because you're, you're just going to debate over and over the kind of political polarization you have in the country right now where nothing happens. And... Um, and you can say, well, that's not very representative. No, I mean, you have a purpose. You want to move forward. And if you're going to have people on it who are just going to try to stop you, you know, you're not going to accomplish anything. So I, I think that was incredibly insightful from a political standpoint by Truman. And so he had people, some more conservative than others. In fact, this, the two, two of the Southern members of the commission ended up filing a dissent on a small part of the, of the report. Um, and what they were worried about was that it was sanctions of the federal government against the states, and they worried it, it would sanction, it would punish poor people for the mistakes of this of the affluent political leadership, and that they would be denied federal aid. Um, but they, you know, that so there was there were differences of opinion on the commission, but it was not on the fundamental issue of whether um, um, people should have equal rights and the right to vote. That, that, that was a non-negotiable minimum. So I would suggest that's not a bad model to follow. I want to ask you one more question before we have to end. Truman is uh, a remarkable figure in the book, and you try to present him in a nuanced way. You don't try to whitewash him, but you try to show his how things that he did earlier in his career influenced what he came to do as president. You tried to signal when it was politically difficult and when it was politically convenient to do some of the things that he did to help civil rights. You, in a really passionate way, describe his address to the NAACP, something no other president had ever done. Was there a moment, you know, it's a, a, it's a tightly written book where uh, Truman wavered in ways that surprised you? Well, he, um, uh, you know, if you were going to try to predict uh, what would have, uh, um, what would um, he do, you would have predicted that when the South went into rebellion, uh, he, uh, in 1948, he would have backed down. In fact, his biggest political supporter, um, campaign manager, Clark Clifford, came to him and said, we're, we're, we're alienating our friends in the South. 
and maybe we need to back off a little bit. Well, what surprised me was Truman told him, I'm not backing up one inch. And um, that impressed me. Um, I was also very impressed in his second term. And he, you know, there's a lot going on in that second term with the Korean War and with, um, and with the, you know, the McCarthyism and all this going on and security about the alleged communists in every agency and everything. Truman knows he can't get anything through Congress. And he is resolved to integrate the armed forces. And he has a lot of resistance from the army in particular. And he devotes an enormous amount of political capital to fully integrating residential life and training in the army. And he doesn't do as much in other agencies, I point out. I, you know, I note that it's really up to the Johnson administration to get in there and deal with a lot of the discrimination and redlining on VA housing and, 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 uh, uh, and, and, and other federal funded mortgage programs uh, that, that the federal government was slow and still discriminatory. But what he did um, by, um, by bringing it into uh, um, uh, my microphone, by the way, is, is, is dying on here. If you let me know if I go out completely, but the, um, the, um, uh, what he does, in my opinion, is is pretty remarkable. He's not a perfect person, and I contrast him um, in regard to his racial views with Judge Waring. Judge Waring would kind of fit in today on racial attitudes. He he developed very close African American friends. He devote he became personally committed in a very personal way to equal justice. Um, and I don't say this like some of my best friends are black. Among his best friends were Walter White and his wife, Poppy Cannon White, and um, Dr. Kenneth Clark, who the great um, psychologist. When he, Judge Waring, after retiring, moves to New York, he is very close with these folks. And, um, and in particular, uh, um, you know, the, 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 I tell a little bit about the relationship between Judge Waring and his wife and, and Walter White and his wife, Poppy Cannon, just a, just a little side here. Uh, Poppy Cannon is a very well-known um, food critic and food um, um, uh, uh, she, she cookbook editor, and she'd written major books on cookbooks. I mean, you go to the Smithsonian, you'll see her Poppy Cannon's books. And um, Walter White um, stuns the NAACP leadership and his friends by leaving his wife of many years and marrying Poppy, who was white. Uh, now, what's interesting about this, um, you can imagine the controversy of a of the head of the NAACP marrying a white woman. Uh, it wasn't so popular among white people or black people. This was very controversial. And um, and among the couple's best friends were Waitus and Elizabeth Waring. In fact, when the whites went to England to marry, the first people they told were Waitus Waring and his wife. Um, uh, that um, and I detail other times in which Walter White, the most important civil rights, is passionately uh, uh, discussing matters with the Truman administration to protect wearing. So, um, uh, so these are not casual relationships; these are very intimate, close friendships. Uh, Harry Truman never kind of 
felt comfortable uh, socializing with African Americans. He distinguished political equality from social equality. Social equality was integration. He didn't particularly want to sit and eat dinner with a black man, though he would be glad to give him the right to vote. Uh, Waitus Waring would, would consider that an artifice. And, uh, um, and, and so, you know, a lot of people reading this are, are leave, you know, like they like Harry Truman. They I mean, they're impressed. They certainly more than they thought he were, but they are amazed by Waitus Waring. Agreed. This reader as well. So I want to note before we end that this book is being made into a documentary for PBS, uh, which yes. I'd like you to tell us a tiny bit about. But also I want to know what your next book is, uh, <laughs> that what the next seven years uh, of your life are going to be about. Well, um, l- let me just start off by saying that um, uh, that the um, – that WGBH, the, the, the um, American Experience show, the big documentary, national documentary show, has a contract and is actively working um, on a, where they tell me to be a two-hour documentary on the story. And I think that's great. I'm mindful that um, more people will probably watch it in one showing of PBS and then um, as it goes into Netflix, then all the people who've read my book, which sold very well, but it would be a fraction of people who would know uh, this story, and I'm very excited about that. We're working hard. I'm, um, the the um, PBS has gotten an excellent uh, uh, producer, and, and Jamila Efron, who's just finished a uh, uh, a film on George W. Bush, and and this is a serious. She's going to do a serious job on this. Um, what my next book? My, my dear wife um, is often asked, "When what, what will be the judge's next book?" And her answer is. You'll have to ask his second wife. So noted. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, so noted. And, 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 you know, if I get inspired, perhaps, you know, I'll do something. Right now, I'm, until the pandemic, um, I had about every free moment I could possibly give away from my courthouse. I was speaking around the country telling this story. And I have canceled between now and the end of the year, 18 speeches um, to major organizations of lawyers, judges, academics, et cetera. And almost all of them have rescheduled me for 2021. So frankly, I'm not around much. Uh, and I think after the, the, the um, show is on in the spring of 2021, they're going to be even more demand. Um, but frankly, I couldn't do any more than I'm doing right now. But um, um, you know, I'm I'm I think telling this story is an important mission for me, and uh, so I'm not racing around looking for another book. Uh, I consider myself uh, I consider this book more connected to my my mission of, as a judge, frankly, to tell the story. Um, and I think that um, a lot of what you liked about the book was that I understood, having been a very experienced litigator before I was a judge, I understood a lot about the legal side and the judicial side of this story that perhaps historians, you know, wouldn't have the background to appreciate. And before we're out, you have to tell everybody that your courthouse used to be the Ernest Hollings courthouse, and it's not anymore. So tell us what it's called now and why. Yes. you know, it's a, it's a quite a story. Fritz Holly a, was a very good friend of mine. And uh, a good reason I'm on the bench is because Fritz 
had been an enthusiastic supporter of mine many years ago, going back to the um, uh, end of the Clinton administration, where he was attempting to have me appointed. He was out of the Senate by the time the president nominated me, but was actively involved in promoting my, my uh, nomination. In 2011, I had, we had a program at the courthouse called uh, a continuing legal education program just to introduce the story of Judge Waring to the, the bar in South Carolina. And it was, it was titled, uh, Jay Waitis Waring and the Descent that Changed America. And people didn't know the story. I mean, the local lawyers didn't know the story. And it was, the lawyers came from all over South Carolina. And, um, and we had no, a number of, of academics from around the country speak. And Senator Hollings came. And Senator Hollings came because he had actually been on the team representing the state and at the trial of Briggs versus Elliott. He'd actually been involved in the case, on the, as he would say, he would have said, on the wrong side of history. And he um, came up to me during that program in 2011, and he said to me, Judge, I never wanted this courthouse to be named for me. I wanted to name it for Judge Waring. I said, well, Fritz, how did it get named for you then? He said, well, I came to the office one morning, and I was told by my staff that the night before, Senator Thurman, the other senator from South Carolina, had slipped an amendment into a, a, a bill that had passed that evening without my knowledge that named a lake in the upstate for himself and the courthouse in Charleston for me. He said, so there it was. It was named for me, and that's what it's been for 30 years. And I want to change that. And I said, well, Senator, we're really honored to have your name on our courthouse, and we really We'll find other ways to honor Judge Waring. We don't need to change the name of the courthouse. And um, he didn't seem very satisfied with my explanation. But, of course, judges don't name courthouses. Congress names courthouses. So over the years after that, and I saw Senator Holling several times every year, he would mention it to me. More along the lines, why aren't you doing anything? And, um, you know, sometimes with older people, you kind of think, that they don't remember what you, they just told you, so they keep telling you the same thing over again. And I, was, I kept saying to Senator Hollings, it, to his complete lack of interest and satisfaction, that, that we, we like the courthouse with his name on it. So finally, he calls Senator Lindsey Graham, and he says, my buddies Gurgle and Duffy, Judge Duffy had practice in his law firm, um, won't help me change the courthouse name, and I need your help. I want to name it for Judge Waring. Senator Graham called me and said, what is he, Fritz talking about? And I said, well, I think he's serious. He's been talking to me about it for five years. And Congressman Clyburn, Jim Clyburn, got involved in the conversation. He was a great admirer of Judge Waring. And um, they both together sponsored a bill that passed the House and the Senate, signed into law by President Obama, renaming the courthouse the J. Waitis Waring Federal Judicial Center. Well, it's quite a story and a statement about the infamously bad judgment of Strom Thurmond that he would choose a lake over a courthouse. Um, <laughs> I would like to recommend this book, uh, Richard Gurgle's Unexampled Courage, The Blinding of Sir Sergeant Isaac Woodard, and the Awakening of President Harry S. Truman and Judge J. Wattis Waring. It's published in 2019. You can get it from the Sarah Crichton website. We will have the link on the blog. You can also purchase it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, 
we are encouraging listeners to support your brick and mortar bookstores that are nearby by using bookshop.org, which will get the book to your doorstep, but it will support one of your local brick and mortars and you can choose which one. Judge, thank you so much for uh, talking with us and, uh, and, uh, and, and sharing this incredible story, some of which is familiar and some of which is absolutely a treasure that you've dug out. Well, Professor, you have been a delight. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much.